Corinthians chapter 10, and the Pew Bibles is on page 821. 2 Corinthians on page 821, chapter 10. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are looking only at the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority of the law the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, but we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that, as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand, so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. May God bless the reading of his word. Sometimes it's hard for us on first reading to catch the point or the flavor, the flavor especially of a passage. I think that we're so used to the Bible, when we come to it, we often read it as kind of like sacred literature, some kind of higher level, where all the people are holy, and they live in harmony, and they love God, they love each other, and we just walk in with these assumptions. And we miss what's really going on in the text. So let me take you back to just the first few verses of that reading. Hear it a second time. Just because, you know, it may have just gone right over your head. Look here for signs of conflict between Paul and the church of Corinth. 
And if you have it still open in front of you, look for those quotation marks because those are most significant. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Who is Paul threatening to wage war against? Not the demons, but the Corinthians. And he warns them, the weapons that we fight with, the weapons that I have, are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension. Verse 6, we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. You are judging by appearances. If anyone's confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, he's unimpressive, and his speaking, his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. I don't know if there's any set of sterner words in Scripture than what we have in 2 Corinthians 10. And it's only the culmination and the most transparent expression of the entire letter. This entire letter, we call it 2 Corinthians. It's actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. History has taken away the first letter and the third letter. We only have the second and the fourth, and the second is 1 Corinthians, and the, and the fourth is 2 Corinthians, and the others disappeared to history, I mean the providence of God. But the whole letter of 2 Corinthians, you know, we saw from 1 Corinthians that there was some tension between the Corinthians and Paul. Now in the meantime, Paul went back to correct them, and they threw him out of the church. And then after that, he sent one of his colleagues to go and deal with them. And now things, if you can believe it, things are on the upswing. It's not as bad as it was. At least they've disciplined one of his severest critics in the church. But still, it's so bad that virtually the entire letter, maybe not chapters 8 and 9, but virtually the entire letter, Paul is fighting with the Corinthians. Now, he starts off slowly because some of you who grew up in Asia would understand that the hotter something gets, the better it is to be indirect. I mean, if it gets explosive, then you have a real problem on your hands. So if you've got something strong to say, you say it in a positive way, and the meaning is obvious but implied. You don't come out and just yell at people unless the relationship is broken down irretrievably. So Paul starts off, it was a common practice in the first century, he starts off kind of hinting and indirect, and we have to infer. But by the time he gets to chapters 10 to 12, the kid gloves come off. This is bare-knuckle fight between him and the Corinthians.
basically the church, or at least its leadership, the, pretty much the church as a whole, is antagonistic toward Paul. Not as bad as it had been recently, but still pretty bad. So he spends the whole letter disarming them, refuting them. Th- you heard it here. Threatening them. You think I'm too gentle. I'm, I'm wishy-washy when I'm with you. And I'm only brave enough to be bold, uh, be argumentative when I'm away. He says, well, bear in mind, what I've been when I'm away, I'm going to be when I'm present. Be prepared for it. You want to fight? I'll fight, he says. What brings this on? And, you know, church fights, uh, fights, uh, congregation or leadership against the pastor are still common today. Not typically. We have other ways of dealing with it. In, In a church that's predominantly Chinese church, we have other ways of dealing with it. But there was a denomination... I won't mention publicly, where, you know, maybe about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, statistics were that the average senior pastor tenure in that denomination, famous American denomination, the average tenure of a senior pastor was 18 months. Even though in that same denomination, some pastors lasted 25, 30 years and really skewed the average up. 18 months. You know, basically a honeymoon period lasts you know, in marriage, in church, uh, with a pastor, the honeymoon period lasts about a year. So basically, there were a lot of pastors. Oh. I'm not sure what kind of... I come up here with notes, you know, a lot of notes. But often I ad-lib as I go. And I'm going to be really careful with the ad-libbing because it could get really a little awkward. But I will point out, you know, the basically, a lot of those pastors, if the average tenure is 18 months and is skewed up by the guys who served a long time, a lot of them last only a year during the honeymoon period, and at the end, boom, they ask the senior pastor. And it just occurred to me, well, our initial contract for pastors at this church is 12 months. <laughs> so that's an innocuous ad-lib, so I'll tell you that. But anyway, moving on. Uh, I hope there's some other ad-libs that don't slip out, and I don't know how. You know, it just depends on what the moment is. What, how, so, so, so if in the end, if this is, re- this is being recorded, so if in the end it's posted, you know I felt at least that it was innocuous enough. If it's not posted, you know why. But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to try to avoid telling you our inside stuff because it it's not edifying. It really won't help you. But you really want to take this issue seriously because I think there is something that you can do each of you can do to make the next pastor's tenure successful and there's stuff you cannot do to make the next pastor's life difficult so let's think about how we can achieve success for the next pastor. But before we get there, let me tell you where we've been. You remember by now. You should remember by now. We spent a whole year talking about the, the spread of Scripture from the God's plan from the very beginning, creation. But you know, we fight so much about creation, Genesis 1 to 3. That, that's just a setup. That's just the, the prelim. You know, that's a prequel. Really, the whole story of Scripture begins with the fall in Genesis 3 and then the restoration in Revelation 21. God is going to undo everything He did. Everything sin did. God's going to undo it and make things even better in Revelation 21 than they were in Genesis 1 and 2. And 
The Old Testament tells us how he got there. And he got there through the, the person of Abraham and the people of Israel. Well, he, he's made progress. But at every point, they blocked his progress. And eventually Christ came as a fulfillment of all the promises that God was going to restore his reign over all the world. That was going to happen. And Jesus comes. But it doesn't happen. So Jesus tells us, well, it'll happen finally when he comes back a second time. So here we are between the first coming and the second coming, and, and we see what life is. And basically the New Testament tells us what life is like between the first coming and the second coming. And then, the same is for us. What life will be like between the first coming and the second coming, same for us. We live in the same era as the New Testament people did. And so we were looking through the New Testament books. And basically, Acts tells us, what is our one task? You know, it's great when we pray for a missionary family that was obliged to leave the field, but whose one objective is to go back to the field, even if it's moderately disruptive, as it would be for any of us if we moved back overseas. This is a great thing to pray for, because the book of Acts says, as a church, not as every individual, but as a church, our, one obje- our chief objective, the one purpose God has given us, is to send the gospel to where it hasn't been heard. The word of salvation is finally, for the first time, available. The clear word of salvation. But it's not available to large tracts of the world. And so this is why missions is a big part of our life as a church. As we govern our lives by the gospel, as the gospel shapes us and affects how we live, then we're going to be out of step with our culture. And you know that in America today, certainly we're out of step with what used to be a Christianized culture. First Thessalonians, Paul talks to them about how they can live in a culture that lives differently than they live and thinks poorly of them for some of the things they live by. As Second Thessalonians, you know, yeah, when, when life is hard, we think, oh, when, when is Jesus coming back? When is Jesus coming back? And the Second Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, the, in Second Thessalonians, ask the same question. When is Jesus coming back? And so Second Thessalonians talks about how do we live in this time when we're waiting for Jesus to come back and, and how much emphasis do we put on that and, and, and how much on the living in the meantime? And then Galatians, oh, you know, in America today, it's really, you know, the civil rights movement was so long ago, before most of you were born, and the Emancipation Proclamation, it was even before I was born, and yet still we haven't figured out the racial issues. And then we've got the immigrants coming in, a new wave of immigrants, and we've got so many waves of immigrants, and we still haven't figured out the ethnic issues. And politically, with Sanders and, and Trump, you know, the whole 1% versus the 99%, we still haven't figured out the socioeconomic issues. And Galatians talks about not how the culture should, but how we need to figure these things out. Then 1 Corinthians. You know, it's so hard. You know, we live in a culture, and then we come to church, and it's so hard to, to realize when it is that we're bringing the Bible, Bible church, when we're teaching the Bible and living the Bible, and when it is that we're actually bringing culture into the church and doing things the way the culture did. And the, second, and the whole of 1 Corinthians, Paul is undermining ways that they brought their culture into the church. And 2 Corinthians continues that main idea, that they're bringing their culture into the church. But the main thing 2 Corinthians deals with is conflict between the church of Corinth and the apostle Paul. So let me just summarize briefly for you. You don't catch, <clears throat> excuse me, I also have the same condition that Jen Lin has. I don't know, something's going on. But uh, catch 
the thrust, you don't need the detail. All of 2 Corinthians, they're fighting Paul. Uh, chapter 1, everywhere Paul went in mission, he faced opposition from outsiders, from people that he was trying to reach with the gospel. And the Corinthians are pretty much faulting him for this. If he were a better apostle, he'd be more effective, he'd create less conflict with the community, and he'd bring more people to Christ. Uh, in, in chapter, the second half of chapter 1, first half of chapter 2, he tells them, he has to justify the fact, he told them he was going to come back and visit, and then he didn't show up. Now, they don't like him, they kicked him out, and yet, when he doesn't come back to visit, they fuss at him for it. And he has to justify the fact that he did not come back. Because it was going to be too painful. If he came back, he'd have to fight them again. Maybe he didn't want to lose again. Or he just didn't want to beat up on them again. And then in chapter 2 and 3, they fault him for his evangelism. This guy's risking his life everywhere. And they fault him for not having enough converts. Chapter 4 and 5, his persona is unimpressive. He's kind of a wimpy guy up front, you know. And they look back at Moses. They go back to Moses, Moses, you know, the Old Testament, Moses, got glory. When Moses says, you know, those, those ten miracles, and Moses says, turn the water into blood, and the water turns into blood, and Moses delivers them from Egypt, and, and Paul can't even keep himself safe when he preaches the gospel. What kind of... If God were with Paul as he was with Moses, Paul would succeed as Moses succeeded. Paul, in chapter 5, verse 6, he quotes him directly. They call him, he's out of his mind. The Apostle Paul. Chapter 7, his letters are too fierce. You know, he's timid when he's there and he's fierce when he's away. In chapter 8 and 9, he's trying to raise money out of them and they don't have a lot of money and he's trying to raise money, not for himself, but for the church in Jerusalem, which is going through famine. But still the fact is, back off. We don't have a lot of money. Quit pumping us for it. In chapter 10, again, he's timid face to face. He's bold at a distance. He circles back around to this one. You can tell this struck in, it's stuck in Paul's craw because he comes back to it a second time, the insults. In chapter 11 and 12, before, you know, his competition was Apollos. And they said, well, Paul, you, you, you're not nearly as good as Apollos. And now he's got other people coming in. Coming in from the church, they, they claim to be coming in from the church in Jerusalem with the authority of the Jerusalem church. And they claim to be, and they have a different theology, they're real big on the law and on Moses. And the Corinthians view these guys as real apostles or super apostles. Paul, you know, he's not, at best he tries and he's not very successful. At worst, I mean, he should not, he's not a real, he shouldn't be an apostle. You know, these guys, these, these are the super apostles. And he's not talking about the 11, original 10 or 11. He's talking about new teachers that came since. And so in chapter 13, he wraps it all up and says, in stark terms, I'm coming. And if I have to, we'll go at it, toe to toe. We'll fight it out. Beware, I'm coming, he says. And you think, the relationship has entirely deteriorated. And, and if this happens today, we think, how can these people call themselves Christian? But it happens today. And it shouldn't surprise us. 
because it happened with Paul, between Paul and the Corinthians. The great Apostle Paul, from whom we derive much of our theology, we think Paul is a hero. The Corinthians certainly didn't think so. Now, I'm not going to try and track all their complaints against him with complaints that exist against pastors today. Too much detail. We're going to focus on the main idea. You want to track some of the detail, go to Bible study this week, or fellowship group this week. The Bible study will track some of the detail. What I want to focus on is the overall thrust of it. And the question we want to consider for today is, how can we keep the relationship between EM and a new EM pastor from deteriorating to this point? Or how can we keep the relationship for, between the CBC and the senior pastor, or CBC and any of its pastors from deteriorating to this point? Because bear in mind, we still live in the same, er, the same era that they lived in. We still live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And if this kind of a problem could occur in Corinth between them and their founding apostle, it can certainly happen here. And those of you who've been for, here for a while know that it has happened here. How can we keep it from happening again? Now, because of the nature of the case, because of the, of the nature of Second Corinthians, and because of the nature of the case, the nature of my position, I'm going to talk more about what you can do to help the pastor to keep from the relationship from deteriorating. Obviously, this will be a pastor-centered sermon, not just because I'm a pastor, but because Paul had that same basic stance as an apostle. Of course, Paul's far higher, far nobler than a, than a pastor. He's an apostle. But look, if it can happen to an apostle, how much more can it happen to a pastor? So I will make one qualification from the very beginning. There are some times when a church must fight its pastors. There are some times when a church must fire a pastor. There are some times when a church must call God down to deal with their pastor. Any public position whether it be you know, rock band or TV personality, politician or pastor, any public position where somebody gets up front and gets a lot of attention can tend to attract narcissists. People who thrive on that visibility. And it's not obvious who's a narcissist and who's just gifted. Because narcissists know how to appear gifted. And it feeds the narcissism. Pray for your pastor search committee that they not appoint a narcissist to the next position. I think it's unlikely. Chinese culture discourages narcissism. But anyway, I do want to acknowledge... Okay, I tell you this. One, I know of a church... A family member of mine was attending a church where the senior pastor had affairs with 10 or 11 or more women in the church. 
which is about 10% of the women in the church, it happens. There are narcissists in ministry. He's been taken out of ministry. He's lost his license to preach. The church has disciplined him. The denomination is with the whole thing. But look, don't jump to that conclusion real fast. Because now that you've had approval to, to acknowledge that some pastors are narcissists, don't look at it too quickly. Don't look for it. Don't assume a pastor is a narcissist. It can happen. Trust, right? But verify. The second point. One of the most difficult things for pastors is the variety of expectations. Peter Drucker, the founder of the Mount of Man- Management Movement. If you've got an MBA, you may think that MBAs have always existed. It was Peter Drucker who really got the whole management movement as an academic discipline developed. He's deceased now. But Peter Drucker used to say, the three most difficult positions in American uh, employment, American corporate life, are the CEO of a hospital, the president of a university, and the pastor of a local church. And for the same reason, in all three cases, because you have so many, such a great variety of competing preferences, competing divisions, competing desires, and you've got to juggle all these and try and keep everybody satisfied. Lyle Schaller adds to that. He, Lyle Schaller came up with a list of 12 things that a pastor could potentially do. And he missed some items. So theoretically, he wasn't trying to be exclusive or, or, or comprehensive. Maybe there's 15 different things a pastor could do. And Schaller makes the point that any one pastor can only do three. So you gotta figure out, figure out what you, pick out your top three. And those are your, the only ones you can hold them accountable for. And the other nine, you've got to staff some other way, through volunteers or, or other staff. Figure out what the top three are, and then hold them accountable for that. And you realize if there's three out of twelve, I don't know, I'm not, an, I'm not a mathematician, uh, what's that? Like 25% of the words that that pastor's going to hear on average are going to be positive. And 75% of the words that pastor hears on average are going to be negative. Because he can't do nine, he can only do three. What are you going to do? Every person that comes into a church, every individual expectations will typically be fine. But they'll be different. And by the time we add all these expectations together, there's a 75% chance the pastor is going to make you unhappy rather than satisfy what you're looking for. Your expectations, your individual expectations will be realistic, reasonable, until they're combined with everybody else's. Variety of expectations is a huge issue. Personality traits. I had a call this week, you know, post-Easter, I had a call this week from one of the seminaries that used to serve here. Now, this guy was unusually gifted. I would have loved, if we had a staff opening, I would have loved to add him to the staff. One of the reasons I wanted to add him was because he was so much different than I am. If you know Myers-Briggs, I'm an ST, and you know, uh, the T's will do fine in this church. But the F's will struggle if I'm the pastor because they don't want a T, they want an F. That's how God wired them. That's how God reaches them. So this fellow's an NF, and I thought, that's great as a balance to an ST. And if you don't know Myers-Briggs, don't worry about it. Just capture this. Different personalities function differently. This guy's an NF, and I'm an ST, and I thought it would be great. We have two worship services in English. We do an NF thing for the F's and the ST thing for the T's. And everybody, twice as many people would be happy. Well, he preached an F sermon for Easter, and it was creative, and it was novel, and it was biblical, and he can preach an NF sermon because he's an NF. 
He says he's never received such blowback as he got for that sermon. And I said, it was probably the STs who fussed at you about it. And sure enough, there are some people who don't want creative and emotionally oriented. They want traditional and cognitive. You're always going to disappoint half the people every time you preach by this schema. Personality weaknesses. Oh, personality strengths. Hmm. We prayed for David because he's going to go off and work on his PhD for two weeks. Poor David. Any of you who would have a PhD know what it's like to work on a PhD for two weeks. You can probably barely remember. You know, it takes two weeks to figure out what you said the last time you were working on it. PhDs. You know, David is a gifted visionary. It's really hard for gifted visionaries to do PhDs, no matter how bright they are. And, and I got a PhD. And people have complained that I'm not much of a visionary. Yeah, because it's really hard to do a PhD if you are a visionary. You know, you can't... Anyway, the point is, every personality has strengths and corresponding weaknesses. And I... Oh, I have a little chart. Never mind, you can find it online. But basically, if, if somebody's a, basically a personality of a D, they're going to do certain things really well and certain things really poorly. And if they're an I, they're going to expect certain, they're going to want certain things, they're going to do them well and do other things poorly. And if they're an S, they're going to do some things well and some things poorly. And if they're a C, and you're going to want to hire somebody or call somebody as a pastor who's a D, I, S, and C, and these things don't exist. So you're really going to take your pick. Which personality traits do I really want? Now I'm a C. Basically, with a little bit of I that complicates my life. But <laughs> anyone who knows this schema will listen to two or three of my sermons and know that I'm a C. And anyone who knows this schema will listen to other sermons and know, oh, that guy's a D. But you know, the biggest, D's are great visionaries. You know, but D's as senior pastors are great for the church, but constantly complained about D's as senior pastors is that they never follow through on the details. Of course they don't. Because they're visionaries. Because they're D's. And if you want to hire a, call a D as a senior pastor, do, I mean, that's brilliant. But you've got a staff with C's and S's and I's so that you, they cover for the weaknesses. No, the details aren't important. What's important is this. No personality can do it all. Some people will be good at one thing, and others are different, good at another. God created us as a body. We staff together. Together we staff the ministry. How about bicultural tensions that we face? You know, one of the questions I get is, commonly I get, why doesn't EM do more stuff with CM? And another common question I get is, how come the second gen... How can we have a challenge retaining the second gen? So you see what's going on here? We want to be more Chinese, and we want to be less Chinese culturally. Have you ever figured out how to, way to be, a way to be more Chinese and less Chinese simultaneously? I haven't figured it out. It'd be great if our church could do it, but there you go. Uh, leadership styles. Whoa. Hmm. Here we go. Let's take an adventure. 
leadership styles. Let me track where I am in my notes so that I can have some kind of controls over what I say to you. <laughs> Pastors should be dynamic leaders. They should be able to excite, recruit, envision the future, and motivate people to work. In an elder-run church, pastors should be able to take direction from the actual leaders. You're tracking me? Do you, in your experience, know any dynamic leaders who are also submissive followers? As if you can, okay, right, in this meeting I'm a submissive follower, in that meeting I'm a dynamic leader. A leader is dynamic because they're dynamic. <laughs> they're dynamic in all their meetings. What are you going to do about it? Hmm. There's a Chinese saying, one mountain cannot have two tigers. This has been a problem for us. We have to figure out how we can work together. As Pastor Morley Lee, one of our former senior pastors, said to me, when I said that to him, he said to me, well, yeah, but a tiger, there's some animal that's a body of a tiger with the wings. And he says, well, but the two can cooperate together and be more powerful. I don't know the Chinese saying, but that's what we need to aim for, is how can the two cooperate together so that we can be more powerful? Now, thinking about being a predominantly Chinese church, there's, and I'm gonna, I won't finish, but I'll draw to a close. Being a predominantly Chinese church, there's a blessing, and there's a, a majority blessing, and there's a minority curse. Here's the thing. In a Chinese church, Chinese culture trains people to be cooperative, submissive, supportive. So most people would be cooperative, submissive, and supportive. But there's a small tradition in British culture, in predominantly British culture, and in Chinese culture, the, the, like the Brethren Movement or the Witness Lee Movement, where there's a distrust of pastors. So you automatically have to be suspicious and careful of a pastor. There's nothing so demoralizing. Trust but verify is fine. But there's nothing more demoralizing to a pastor than to have people, for him to be working hard, trying his best, and have people distrust him. Preaching. Should preaching be... Interesting, amusing, and accessible? Or should it be accurate and deep? Life cycle. I'm going to tell you another story. I'll have to stop here. When I first came here, no, when I first interviewed for this position in December 1999, Pastor Chuang, the senior pastor, had been here four years. And so when I interviewed with Pastor David, when I was talking to Pastor David Rowe, I said to him in his office, now my office. I said to him, Pastor Chowang has been here four years. Five years is the magic point. I said, is there anything on the horizon that you see? And he says, no. Every, you know, there's a little, few little things, but nothing big. Here's the rule, general rule of thumb. Every five years, there's going to be a conflict between the pastor and a faction of the church. And if you manage to postpone it a little bit, it just grows bigger. So basically assume every five years there's going to be a fight. And then Dave, no, I, you know, four years. And then David said, no, and a little few little things. <laughs> you know, a year later, there was a massive blowout fight and people left the church and the senior pastor left the church. And yeah. 
Sometimes it's just life stage. So if you get disgruntled with a new guy, ask how long he's been here. <laughs> if it's been five years, get really suspicious, not of the pastor. Get really suspicious of yourself and the life cycle idea. All right. Let me end with this. See, I can't always trust the pastor. I said I was going to end with the other thing. <laughs> what can you do to set an environment where a new pastor can thrive? Parents, forgive me. Oh, no, older generation, overseas-born parents, forgive me. I'm going to, what can you do to make sure the new pastor survives? To create an environment that helps him survive? Don't treat him like your parents treated you growing up, right? How do you help him improve? Oh, tell him where he doesn't do well. No. How do you help him improve? Don't go as far as the American parents do. Let him know what he does well. Any of you who've gone to business school will know the old SWOT analysis. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Thank you. I had a plant. Strength, now the, the latest I've heard is, forget all that stuff about W-O-T. Strengths. Work on the strengths. That's all you can do. You can't really adjust your weakness as much. Or the opportunities or threats, you don't have a lot of control of. The only thing, you, focus on your strengths. When a new pastor comes in, let me tell you this, not just the first few months when you're in love with him and he's in love with you. When the new pastor, or she, when the new pastor comes in, this, you know, statistically, that they're likely to get 25% appreciation and 75% criticism. And if you do it Chinese style, they won't even hear the appreciation because you don't want them to get a big head and think they're better than they are. Right? That's what I meant about the Chinese parenting style. No. Figure out the, wish, uh, the, the pastor selection team, the pastor search team, will hopefully eventually tell you the top three criteria they're looking for. Those are the only three things you should ever hold that pastor responsible for. And then, figure out what they're good at and compliment. I noticed it. Be specific. Say, I noticed it. I appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. When people are unhappy, they will let the pastor know. If you want him to feel like the whole church is not unhappy with him, you've got to speak up. Often. He's not a child. It's not childish to do this. Just to let the pastor know what you like. And it ties in with his strengths. And then he'll do it more. You have a chance to get more of what he's good at if you let him know what he's good at and what you like. Let's pray together. Father, by your word, by your spirit, by your grace within this community, Help us to continue avoiding the Corinthians' mistakes toward Paul. In Jesus' name, amen.